falling asleep, microbiomes, and alchemist bacteria. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. And this week, wow, do we have a lot to talk about. A new video series, a bunch more tour stops. Of course, you know the book is coming. So much is going on right now. I'm going to travel the country to see you all. I can't wait. But now I guess we need to do a podcast. So let's get it started. So many announcements this week. Well, I guess not many. I just say so many because I'm so excited. I've been working on something that I'm really excited about, and I haven't been allowed to share it or talk about it um, because we're trying to you know, do this book marketing or whatever, and timing's important. But I get overexcited, and I just want to share things. So I've been working with Kevin O'Brien at Journeybox Media and the other great folks over there to create a series of videos that explore the questions and topics that are covered in Finding God in the Waves, my upcoming book. It's a relatively difficult book to talk about or market because it's got such a a diversity of topics included, all around the central idea of reconciling science and faith and uh, overcoming the kind of uh, destructive doubt that, that many people experience. So today, we've launched the first video, uh, and I'm really excited about it. So if you want to watch the video, it's at findinggodinthewaves.com. It'll show right up there. Of course, you can also see it on my Twitter feed or my Facebook page, wherever. And this first video, um, and there's a lot of these that will be coming in the coming weeks, but this first video is about who I wrote the book for. And that was really, to me, the most important thing about this whole book is the audience I had in mind when I wrote it. And I don't mean I had some hypothetical audience in mind. I mean that I would take your emails and tweets and questions and when people would kind of bare their soul to me over email, I'd actually print that out and put it next to my computer while I wrote the manuscript so that I knew exactly who I was talking to. And so we just made a little uh, short video, it's just a couple of minutes, that talks about that. So I'd love for you to go check out that video at findinggodinthewaves.com. Uh, And then, of course, the other thing I have to talk about is I told you more dates were coming on the Finding God in the Waves book tour, and wow, have we added a lot more dates. So just a couple uh, in particular, Portland, Oregon. We've got two Los Angeles stops with an Orange County stop coming soon. Savannah, Georgia, Houston, Texas. New York City will probably announce this week a specific date. And there's a lot more cities in the work as well. Uh, for example, Boston, uh, you're, you're in the works, and we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll announce that date. But there's more than that. There's several more cities to come. But if you go to findingonthewaves.com slash tour, you'll see, really, this is a big tour. We're going a lot of places, trying to go to as much of the country as I can to see people who listen to this podcast and who hopefully uh, some of you will buy the book. So, again, 
kick off the video series talking about the topics in the book available at findinggodthewaves.com and all the uh, updated dates and times and cities for the Finding God in the Waves book tour at findinggodthewaves.com slash tour. The last thing is kind of I'd like to talk about is the Liturgist Gathering. Uh, that's part of the book tour. Chicago in October is selling out fast. I have all, really no doubt at this point that one's going to sell out before it happens in October. So if you've been thinking about joining us in Chicago, I would stop thinking and start actually getting your ticket at theliturgist.com slash gathering. Denver is a, is a lot safer bet. <laughs> We've got a lot of lot more room in Denver, although I believe it or not, ticket sales actually are picking up in Denver as well. So I think that's going to be a really well-attended event. But we'd love to see you at the Liturgist Gathering. That's going to be me and Michael and Lisa and uh, all of you. And we've got some really cool stuff planned. We're going to announce more specifics about the structure of the gathering really soon because Michael and I have been talking about that. And uh, But I think you're going to love it. Even before you know specifics, trust me, it's going to be an amazing time. So with that, uh, let's go ahead and do a podcast today. Hey, Science Mike. I just wanted to ask you about alchemy. I just found an article online talking about a bacteria that's purported to ingest poisons and excrete pure, well, 24 karat gold. Uh, I couldn't find anything in the articles that described any sort of chemical process or way that, that this particular bacteria was getting a hold of gold. So I was wondering if you were able to find any deeper insights for me on this thing that I considered fringe science, but found all over the science journals. Thanks. Bye. Well, it's funny you mention this thing you considered fringe science, because when I first started listening to this question, I assumed it was some kind of pseudoscience, uh, just based on the description. And then when you said you saw it in reputable journals, I didn't believe you. So I checked for myself. And um, yeah, you're right. <laughs> This, this is true. There is, in fact, a bacteria, a specific species of bacteria. Now, if you think I have trouble with some words, watch when I try to do a Latin bacteria species name. Uh, Cupria vitis metaldurans, metallia durans, maybe. <laughs> People who speak Latin are uh, throwing their headphones off right now. Anyway, one specific species of bacteria does in fact convert toxic chemicals to gold which is really wild that's that is a real thing uh so does that mean alchemy is real it's totally possible to produce gold well the reason i was skeptical of that idea is gold is an element it's an atomic element it's not a chemical compound it's not a alloy it's not a molecule it's an atom and as far as i understand in physics the only way to make gold is in a supernova that's the only time gold gets made right anything any element heavier than iron is produced during a supernova so i didn't see how a, a bacteria could create gold out of chemicals that didn't contain gold. It just didn't seem possible. And that's for good reason. It is not. So how do we have a bacteria that produces gold out of toxic chemicals? Well, that's the trick. (laughs) 
Uh, this species of bacteria can't turn any, just, just any old toxic waste, any toxic chemical into gold. It can only do it with one specific chemical, gold chloride, uh, which there are several versions of gold chloride depending on how many gold atoms are bonded with uh, the chlorine atom. But all of them are nasty. They really are toxic. Uh, but this particular species of bacteria can kind of sit in a pool of the stuff. And uh, in about a week, it can digest gold chloride into just regular old gold. So basically, this is the digestion process. Uh, and this bacteria is stripping the chlorine atom away from the gold, at which point uh, gold is bonding with whatever it can find, which is another gold atom, making pure gold. And uh, what you've got is bacteria poop, golden bacteria poop, right? Because uh, uh, poop or excrement or waste is leftover byproducts of digestion. Things our biological systems can't use to produce energy. So this bacteria is using the chlorine. Now, I'm not a biochemist, and I couldn't see any specific documentation on what it's doing. I don't know if it's using that chlorine as a catalyst or if it's a, a final product in, in some chemical it's producing to create energy or harness energy. Uh, but that gold, that pure gold, does qualify the technical definition of poop. <laughs> so it uh, sounds magical and like alchemy at first, and the end result is uh, it's really expensive bacteria poop. So this is not like some way to end the scarcity of gold because you're taking a chemical that has gold in it in the first place, which for that reason is expensive to produce in laboratories and is used in industrial applications. And you're just pulling the gold back out of it. Now, this is interesting for uh, toxic waste cleanup um, in that you could potentially use this species of bacteria to clean up gold chloride in environments that it doesn't belong in. So that's interesting, but not true alchemy. Really interesting, fun question, though. Our next question came in via email, and it reads, Hey, Mike, when you were a guest on the Relevant Podcast, you mentioned that you had taught yourself to fall asleep within five minutes of laying down each evening. What is your technique for falling asleep, and what is the science behind it? Do you have any other tips for falling asleep at night? And although this is the question I read on the air, I've probably seen this question a hundred times in the last month <laughs> because of the relevant podcast and because my friend Donald Miller wrote a blurb for my book. And in that blurb, he talked about actually seeing me kind of do this process like we were hanging out um, at, at a lodge together and we were all outside and uh, I put myself to sleep really fast. <laughs> I think five minutes might uh, be long. I, I think I usually do it in less than a minute, often less than 20 seconds, uh, which probably sounds incredible to a lot of people, but it's, it's actually true. Uh, there is a technique to it, and obviously a lot of people are curious because I get asked this so much. Uh, here's the bad news. This is not a quick or easy trick. It's not like I can show you a YouTube video that's going to magically help you fall asleep tonight or give you some weird trick, as marketers like to say right now. Uh, this is something that you have to train yourself to do over time. So, But I'll tell you how I do it. I'll tell you exactly how I do it, and you can see if it works for you or not. The first step 
is really good sleep hygiene. I think one of the reasons people have difficulty falling asleep is because we have poor sleep hygiene. So here's some things that will help you set yourself up for success to train yourself to fall asleep faster. Stick to a schedule. Go to bed about the same time every night and wake up about the same time every morning. It's incredibly, incredibly helpful. Uh, Control your lighting. So as you get later in the evening and closer in bed, turn off more lights in your home and make it darker. Avoid screens. Turn the TV off. Put your phone away. Don't use the computer. 30 minutes before you lay down is great. 60 minutes is better. 90 minutes is fantastic. Because your uh, sleep-wake cycle is controlled by a sodium and potassium current in the brain. And this cycle of currents is influenced uh, primarily by light and when you eat, right? So you also don't want to eat right before you go to bed. So don't eat or drink right before bed. Try to avoid caffeine after 4 p.m. if you're on a normal working day schedule. Now, if you if you work on the night shift, obviously that won't work. But, but several hours, uh, five, six hours before you're going to lay down. Stop ingesting caffeine. You want to get at least seven hours of sleep a night, and eight is better. Um, And that's also, believe it or not, going to help you fall asleep faster. Some people say, if I get six hours a night, I'm great. Um, For most people, studies would say that's not true. Seven is the bare minimum for most people, and eight is closer to ideal. Um, And then this is really big. Don't use your bed for anything but sleep or sex. Don't watch TV in bed. Don't read your phone in bed. Don't tweet. Don't check emails. Because you're training yourself to do the wrong things in uh, that environment. So what you're wanting to do is condition yourself so that your bed means it's time to sleep. Um, And that's it. Studies and and myself agree that, uh, (laughs) especially for a guy... Sex can certainly aid the going to sleep process, although that's not the trick I use. So when you do all those things and you, you set yourself up for success uh, by giving your brain its best chance to be in the right current phase as you're going to sleep, and this is, this is a big thing. You know, we, we love, there's a dopamine cycle involved with smartphones, so we like to look at email and Facebook and Twitter with the phone on the nightstand right before we go to bed. And right when we wake up, and that is an incredibly destructive habit for your personal well-being and your ability to sleep, stay away from that seriously if you want to sleep. So if you do all those things, then this training technique may work for you. It's important. What I'm about to tell you probably won't be effective if you don't have good sleep hygiene and you aren't disciplined and regimented about your um, sleep routine. But going through a routine is important. So with that said, here's how it works to actually train yourself to fall asleep faster. You start with something that's called progressive muscle relaxation. I like to start at the the very top of my head and move down towards my feet one body part at a time and intentionally relax my muscles. Some people like to think of like a a melting visual. Just imagine yourself kind of melting into the mattress, getting heavier 
And, you know, you can say with every exhale, every exhalation, you get more relaxed. So as you kind of feel your head and neck relax, then you can move to your shoulders. Then you can move to your chest, your abdominals, maybe down your arms and into your hands, your hips, your thighs, your lower legs, bottoms of your feet. Just going to get this really relaxed state. Most people find that feels pretty good just to do anyway. And then as you get into this relaxed state, and you kind of just regularly scan your body for any signs of tension and relax and melt, then you switch to a, a very simple breathing meditation where you breathe in and out and you pay attention to that breathing. You just listen to your own breathing. And as is typical with any meditation, you will have thoughts and you kind of say, oh, hi, thought. I had a thought. Isn't that interesting? And then you just gently return your attention right back to your breathing. That's it. Progressive muscle relaxation and a breath meditation. These are, these are kind of fundamental concepts in something called biofeedback, which is where you become aware of your body's states and, and intentionally manipulate them. And over time, that technique uh, will build a discipline where your brain, like any other kind of meditation, produces less thoughts. And so what you'll find is if you do this consistently, you'll kind of internalize these meditative practices. So when I lie down in bed, I just immediately, <laughs> my whole body melts, my, all my muscles relax, and I listen to my breath. And it takes like two, three, maybe five breaths, and I'm gone. Uh, but that's something that took me literally years of practice to get to. Uh, so the payoff is amazing. It's it's like a parlor trick. I can fall asleep anywhere. But uh, it's not something I just figured out one day. It's something, I, I, honestly, it probably took me a solid decade of consistent practice to work that out. Maybe you could beat me. Maybe you could do it in three or four years. <laughs> but like I say, it's not some... Uh, thing that's going to work overnight. Uh, now, what's the science of it? It's it's really normal. It's the science of sleep cycles and meditation. And it has all kind of benefits. I sleep deeper. I have fewer nightmares. I have less stress. I usually wake up with a pretty clear mind. I don't wake up with all the day's anxieties rushing on me. Uh, with that kind of a, a focused meditative approach to falling asleep, I actually usually wake up with a lot of ideas and feeling very creative. So I've got links that kind of talk about some of the stuff on AskScienceMike.com this week. You can check it out. Uh, and hopefully, maybe in 10 years, you'll fall asleep in 20 seconds too. Hi, Mike. This is Becky from Oklahoma City. In a previous episode, you had mentioned how you had been sick and how the treatment for that sickness had wiped out your microbiome and how that had caused physical and emotional effects. I was wondering, um, what is the science behind our microbiome? What does it do for us? And um, also, what did you do to um, rebuild that after your illness? Thanks so much. Okay, that's a really great question. I think that's going to interest a lot of people. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, some of the specific science isn't entirely understood today, and we'll unpack that in the answer. So here we go. Uh, your body, especially your intestines, is a really vital ecosystem. If you would imagine for a second a jungle or a savanna 
where you have herds of, of prey animals and herbivores, and then you have predators kind of stalking them. That's that's what your body is like, especially your intestines. Only you're the savanna or the field, not the animals. <laughs> so you have these bacteria, the vast bulk of which belong to just a couple of uh, of uh, genuses of bacteria or two families of bacteria. Um, and then there's bacteria that feed on those bacteria. And then there's specialized uh, types of viruses that, that feed on the bacteria, some of which only feed on the bacteria that feed on the bacteria. And you find that it's this incredibly diverse ecosystem that happens uh, in your body and is part of how you live. And here's the interesting thing. We've mapped the human genome, but we're just starting to kind of scratch the surface and study the human microbiome. Now, here's what we understand today. We know that bacteria help us to digest food, and we've actually done tests that specifically show that when we wipe out the microbiome of laboratory mice, they have to ingest a third more calories just to survive. So their efficiency in turning food into usable calories drops without the bacteria that live in their guts. And we would surmise that very similar effects are at play in humans. Uh, We also know that bacteria can help uh, boost immunity and influence for good or bad our immune system. Although most uh, research I read would say that the mechanisms aren't completely understood today, uh, maybe not even not completely, they're almost mysterious right now. We know that bacterial populations in our gut influence the kinds of allergies we have. We know that our microbiome can affect our propensity toward obesity. Now, some studies have even found that bacteria can pass chemical messages to our gut neurons and influence our moods. If you didn't know that, Other than your brain, the part of your body that has the most neurons is your GI tract. Some scientists call it the second brain or the gut brain. And that brain or that collection of neurons is in much closer communication with the bacteria in your intestine than the brain in your skull. And we understand that that second brain has the ability to significantly impact your mood and motivation. So it's really fascinating if you consider that there's 10 trillion human cells in an average human and there's somewhere between you know eight and and 20 trillion bacterial cells in a given person so in most people bacteria actually outnumber human cells although that number is deceiving because all of the bacteria in you would fit like in a plastic bag but what's weird is if you consider that incredibly high number of um and I actually think I just misquoted. I think it's 27 trillion human cells. Ah, look at me. So either 10 trillion or 27 trillion, both are huge numbers. I think it's 27 trillion in an average person. Regardless, um, most of the human cells in your body are blood cells. Now, they're not most of your mass, but they're most of your cells. Your muscle cells are a huge part of your mass, but relatively few in number. Why? one muscle cell is much larger than a red blood cell. So I'm just trying to map something out. Sometimes when I say that uh, bacteria outnumber human cells in the human body, some people then think that more than half of your weight is bacteria, and that's not the case. 
But it's still an interesting image. It still shows the way that we are less separate from nature and uh, ecosystems than we sometimes style ourselves to be. Now, when it came to my own situation, I had a, a really bad bacterial infection in the flesh of my scalp and my ear, and I had to take some really serious painkillers. They actually uh, gave me several IV bags of uh, antibiotics and then put me on a really, really powerful antibiotic regimen. And it absolutely just wiped out uh, all the the ecosystem in my body. And they told me it would. And they told me to take uh, certain types of probiotics and eat certain yogurts, and I did. And just as soon as, you know, I would take that an hour after I took the pills. The next time I took pills, it'd wipe it all out again. And it left me feeling with a very low energy level, a little bit of a, a mild depression, no appetite. It's, it's really kind of debilitating. And over time, once I was able to stop taking the antibiotics, I continued to take the probiotics. I continued to eat the active culture yogurts. And I ate high-fiber foods to try to stabilize the environment of my gut enough to repopulate it. And, you know, my energy level's back up. Uh, My um, mood is back up. But I will admit, I still really don't have a lot of an appetite. I eat because the clock says it's probably time to eat. The sizes of my meals are a lot less consistent. I don't have the food aversion I had. I really had for a while. Uh, food just looked disgusting. Even my favorite foods, I didn't want it. The food aversion is gone, but I don't really crave food like I did. Uh, I'm half hoping that's permanent because I've managed to shed some pretty significant weight <laughs> because uh, I haven't been stuffing my face so much. But it's really interesting. Now, you know, here's the thing about probiotics. Some of the research on certain types of probiotics are interesting, but there's also just a lot of like junk out there, just kind of pseudoscience, um, not based on on research stuff. Um, so I would say I would say approach probiotics with caution. I think most of them are probably harmless or placebo, and some seem to be beneficial. Just look for studies on the particular formulation you're thinking about before you try it. But the the fact of the matter is. I've learned firsthand how essential this ecosystem that lives in our bodies is to our own well-being physically and even emotionally. Our last question comes in via email, and it reads, Hey Science Mike, first, I'd like to say you've helped me so much in the past year, and I just wanted to say thanks. My question is about spiritual abuse. I have an anxiety disorder, and throughout my life, a lot of spiritual things, worship, and the Bible have all become triggers for anxiety attacks. I really want to and feel that I'm ready to try to have a relationship with God again, but it seems I can't. What should I do? Thanks. Well, first of all, I'm so sorry that you have had such traumatic experiences involving spirituality and Christianity and something that was intended to be a path of peace and greater love and something Jesus even calls a more abundant life. Uh, Someone or some people have turned into a source of pain for you. And I'd first just like to say, 
it's not your fault and there's nothing wrong with you and you're not bad. And I don't believe that God judges you because you have anxiety related to spiritual imagery like that. Uh, So I would start by just saying, you know, you can have a relationship with God without corporate worship or reading the Bible or whatever spiritual things trouble you. These triggers are memories and stimulus patterns that have become associated with trauma in your limbic system. Whatever happened hurt you enough that your brain thinks it's to your survival advantage to avoid anything like it. Uh, So I would start by thinking, are there spiritual things or things you associate with God that don't cause anxiety attacks? And could you focus on those first? For example, if you were to pray on your own or do meditation on your own, uh, is that something that triggers you? If not, I would focus on that, especially because science shows that very few things are as good for your brain or make you feel as close to God as a regular prayer practice. Uh, If you're able to pray on your own and you want to move into more of a corporate worship environment, why not have a couple of very close very trusted friends pray with you or meditate with you or even sit in silence and centering prayer. And you may find that these are things that bring you more calm and more peace, more of a feeling of connection with others and even a feeling of connection with God. I think the most important thing is that you don't place any pressure on yourself. Uh, Our spiritual discipline, our spiritual walk, Is not a performance. It's not something that we try to succeed at, but in my opinion, is instead a gift we receive. It's a way that helps us feel more alive, helps us feel more connected and more in love with other people. Uh, Now, in terms of starting to recover from the anxiety disorder that's uh, associated with these triggers, Uh, I would say it's important to have really safe conversations about the pain you're experiencing and the events that cause that pain to form. I would certainly recommend that you consider seeing a therapist or mental health professional in context with those feelings, but absent that, simply safe conversations with friends uh, will help to relieve some of the psychological and neurological pressure behind those triggers. And conventional anxiety treatments work for spiritually centered anxiety just as well as they do for more generalized anxiety disorders. I've actually recently done an Ask Science Mike episode on that. If you check out episode 75, which is titled Anxiety, Demon Possession, and Righteous Anger, I talk a lot about uh, specific treatment options for anxiety disorders. Um, Just remember... There's no one way a relationship with God looks like. Something as simple as singing with friends or reading from the Bible at home or some other neutral ground can form a foundation for a relationship with God if you physically or psychologically can't tolerate a church environment. Whatever happens, just know that you are loved, that you're loved by God, and there are Christians who would be happy to walk with you through this uh, without pressuring you to act in any specific way in order to feel close to God. 
Well, there's another episode of Ask Science Mike. Before we wrap up this show, I'd like to revisit a topic we covered on last week's show. I don't think this is something I've ever done before, uh, but we talked about sunscreen last week, and uh, I talked about you know some of the ideas out there and the science of sunscreen and sunscreen causing cancer, and I still feel really good about that answer. Um, but I mentioned that I didn't see any valid science that undermined the idea that sun exposure was dangerous. And uh, one of my readers, Brian Jones, came up with a really thorough, well-sided response to that idea, wherein he says that the situation is more subtle and complex, and that some of the positions I attributed exclusively to pseudoscience are held by respected scientists, to which he cited seven specific studies. Uh, And he does, in fact, paint a more nuanced picture uh, than I did in the original answer. I would still stand behind the fact that uh, sunburns are dangerous, that sunscreen is not, and that sun exposure in general should be approached with caution. Uh, But he does point to some research that seems to indicate that a lack of sun exposure increases a risk for other types of cancers uh, and that a regular moderate exposure to the sun is the most healthy. So uh, I haven't had a chance to review all that research. I don't have an opinion on it yet, but I thought it may be useful for you to read for yourself. So if you go to AskScienceMike.com and click on episode 78 and then scroll down to the comments, I've set Brian's comment as a featured comment, so it will always show up at the top of that comment thread. And if you have uh, questions or curiosity about what what amount of sun exposure is the right amount of sun exposure, I think that might be an important counterpoint to what I said last week. Uh, and always, always, I love corrections. Uh, it happens a lot. You know, the, the episode on um, chiropractors, I got a lot of pushback from people who practice chiropractic on. Uh, I love it. What I really like about this feedback in particular is it cited the specific studies in question because when I had googled those positions what I got were like essential oil sites and like food bloggers and people who typically don't present very credible scientific information and none of them actually cited studies so when I'll always read your feedback and I'll always read uh, pushback on my answers but when you provide specific citations like Brian did it's much easier for me to correct my own thinking and, and see where your claims are coming from. As you know, on AskScienceMike.com, I always try to share my notes on where uh, I got the information I use to support my opinion on a given question. So, Brian, thanks so much for the really thoughtful pushback, and I'd encourage everybody to go check that out. Uh, as always, to make Ask Science Mike happen, we need more questions. We always need more questions. And so you can submit questions to the show by going to AskScienceMike.com where you can record a voice question or you can type out a email question. You can use the hashtag AskScienceMike on Twitter or YouTube or SoundCloud. I'll just go ahead and tell you the easiest way to get a question on the show is a voice question. We just get a lot more text questions than email questions. Uh, believe it or not, most of the email questions uh, don't even make it for consideration. Because there's just so many, and a lot, most, a lot of the questions are duplicates, and I only let new questions kind of into the queue. 
Uh, so voice questions are, are the easiest way, although as we do answer two text questions every single week. So it's not like you'll never have a chance to get your question answered. Just statistically speaking, voice questions, a little better shot. Of course, you can guarantee that you get a question on the show just by becoming a patron on Patreon. And uh, at certain reward levels, you get an automatic question on the show. So that's kind of a neat thing that not a lot of people have taken advantage of, which kind of surprises me. Our patrons also pick out the show's questions each week. So they're the ones who have final say on what comes on the program, not me. So if you'd like to be a part of the patron team, just go to AskScienceMike.com, find the Patreon button, and click it. And then you can help make Ask Science Mike financially possible, which I really appreciate. Now, if money's tight, I get it. You can rate the show on iTunes. You can share one of your favorite episodes on social media, and that helps a whole lot, and I appreciate it. Of course, I'd also like to thank Andrew Galucky, who handles pre-production for Ask Science Mike, Greg Nordine, who is our producer and sound designer, and Jeb Bodiford, who composed and performed and recorded the Ask Science Mike theme song. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I can't wait to talk to you next week. 